I'm Dean Andrew Strauss, and welcome to On the Witness Stand. Today, my guest is Dawanjebo Shabalala, an associate professor at the University of Dayton School of Law. Raised in South Africa, Jebo received his bachelor's from Vassar College, his JD from the University of Minnesota School of Law, and his PhD from Maastricht University. He came to Dayton Law from Case Western Reserve Law School in 2017. Jebo's cutting-edge research on the relationship between intellectual property law and both climate change and the rights of indigenous people impacts highly salient topics such as the Glasgow Conference and its implications for climate equity, global access to COVID vaccines, and intellectual property protection of indigenous knowledge, all of which we will discuss today. Welcome, Jebo. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Uh, Jebo, let's start with the uh, latter topic of IP protection and indigenous knowledge. You have a, a new paper up um, on SSRN that's going into the Queens Mary Journal of Intellectual Property Law on The Lion Sleeps Tonight, a song that probably all of our listenership has, has heard at one time or another. And the song actually has a rather uh, interesting, if uh, problematic, history. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that history and then uh, what uh, its relevance is to uh, your your new uh, paper. So yeah, so I grew up with both versions of that song in my household. The Lion Sleeps Tonight was right by the tokens and ended up in the Lion King. Right, it's a it's a song we all know from campouts and sleepovers and everything else. But the song is also a song called Mbube, Lion, and it's a it's a song that most young people in South Africa, especially those of Zulu origin like I am myself, have heard in its original version or re-recordings of um, that been that been made. And the claim that we hear, the story that we hear is it was composed in the 30s by Solomon Linda, who was township comp- composer, the township genius, and he recorded this song with Gallo Records in the 19, right, in the 1930s. And then, right, at a certain point when the style of music that he was interested in called Isikatame that he helped to create began to die off a little bit, a folklorist and musicologist gathered all these recordings and sent them to the U.S. to records in the U.S. where Pete Seeger heard it, um, transcribed it, right, called it Wimowe, he sang it with his group and it became a hit and then was re-recorded later by a group called The Tokens, who turned it into The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And the problem is, in that translation from, from South Africa to the US, Solomon got lost. He wasn't identified as the composer. It wasn't, he wasn't identified as anything. It was just considered a piece of folklore that um, Pete Seeger could take and turn into music and make claims over. And so one of the things that you see is that that song made tons of money for many people in the U.S. and Solomon Linda got almost nothing from so, that. So let me ask you, Jebo, with hearing that story, that sounds to me like a pretty, I'm not an IP specialist, but that sounds to me like a pretty uh, plain vanilla form of, of theft, of intellectual yeah. property theft, and that there's not really, it, 
sort of first uh, first impression, there's not really a sort of indigenous cultural element necessarily to it. Somebody ripped off somebody else's song. Where does it get more complicated than that? Yeah, right. And, and of course, that's a story we know, right? That's a story they tell about Solomon and Linda, that it's, it's just a tradition. It's part of this broader tradition of taking music from folklorists or from minoritized communities. You see this with the blues in the US, right? You see this in other folklore traditions in Latin America and in Europe. It's a traditional story, right? Big companies, more powerful people taking music and art from less powerful people and claiming it for themselves. And the problem is, of course, that's true if we buy the premise that Solomon Lindo was actually the composer of the song. And there's evidence from musicology and from musicology research, especially by uh, uh, a researcher called Vate Elmer, that actually no, Solomon Lindo wasn't the composer. Right? And in fact, it was a traditional Zulu song that he himself recorded with Gala Records, right? And then the question arises, oh, that, how do we make a justice claim around that then, right? We've got this story around the justice claim against a composer who was ripped off, but how do we tell a story about the justice claim from the Zulu nation, the tradition of Zulu culture, where this was ripped off from, right? And with, how do we tell that story? And I think the, the, the thing I'm doing here is trying to tell Solomon Linda's story as one of traditional knowledge being taken rather than just a composer being ripped off. So that's that becomes a really fascinating question, I, I, I think, right? Because in some sense, you're dealing not with just this individual problem, but as you're suggesting, with a problem that implicates the entire sort of colonial uh, uh, history of Western societies um, in uh, meeting and oftentimes um, having a very, very deleterious impact on non-Western societies that have a completely different, less individualistic view of property in general and probably intellectual property in particular. So there's all sorts of implications to this question if I'm <laughs> understanding this correctly. And you try in this paper, Jebo, to in within the context of this of this one uh, narrative to to resolve this conflict and how do you go about doing that? <laughs> Luckily, it's not just me. Um, so part of the, it is right. There has been a huge movement, especially since the late 1990s and early 2000s, to generate legal, moral, political recognition of the idea that traditional knowledge is just like any other form of intellectual property and needs to be protected in some way or some form, right? that it is not protectable by copyright or by patent or by trade secrets, those forms of, of intellectual property that are common in many developing countries. But we need something that's more similar to something like what the Europeans now call geographical indications, right? which was a new form of protection for the generation of, you know, agricultural products like champagne, for example, or gouda cheese, right? And because we have this tradition of creating new protections for new subject matter, it made sense to say, well, traditional knowledge needs this kind of protection too. And you have this negotiation process begin at the World Intellectual Property Organization to do that. But you didn't just have that, right? You had legislation in lots of different countries, in Africa, 
New Zealand, parts of South America, in the ag impact countries, right, to begin to provide such protection. And so one of the things that we're thinking about here is as we begin to consider these forms of protection, what lessons can we learn from the Solomon Linda story about not just that outsiders coming in and taking information, but the role of people like Solomon and Linda who are insiders and what their role is in the kind of problem misappropriation of traditional knowledge. So, so what is, so how does that actually work in terms of rewarding individuals when this is obviously part of the problem if you have a whole community that has collective ownership, how do individuals get uh, compensated or, or not? Does the entire communities are compensated? I think, you know, this is one of the struggles in the legislation and in the negotiations, right, is thinking through, do we have a kind of system that says, okay, we have to give communities their rights and we have to give individuals their rights. And a lot of the legislation struggles with this. And my argument, I think the argument of quite a few people is that, why do we need to reinvent the wheel? Each of these communities has its own legal system and norms for deciding which rights are attributed to the community and which rights are attributed to the individual. All that any other country or any other legislation needs to do is recognize the rules that that community has for members of its own community regarding how division and ownership and benefits and rights are distributed. And then that's what we should do. And the argument is that's not that different from what we used to do anyway, right? In intellectual property law, France used to have a different kind of system than the UK, than the US, right? And so what you had was a system of recognition and national treatment. It's not that different, right? That we can we can consider ways to do that for this is the argument that I'm making a few other people are making. I think a lot of people are concerned with the problem that you pose, right? Which is, yes, but what if the, in the community has, shall we say, a less than stellar record of protecting individual rights? How should we deal with that? And, and what's the answer to that? The answer is we can both look at a higher level and a lower level, right? So at the high level, any nation or sovereign or unit that wants recognition must comply with our broader system of international human rights. The International Convention on, on Civil and, and, Economic, uh, and Civil Rights, it's now Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. All of that rights framework is applicable to any sovereign in worldwide, right? It's universal law as, as far as we're concerned. So I think that's one way to say, well, we don't have to worry about that. If you want to have concerns about that, each country will figure out how to implement those rights in its own particular national framework. So that's a high level. The lower level one is, that's not your job. Just because you happen to be the US sovereign, that doesn't give you any rights to figure out what the Navajo sovereign should do with respect to its citizens, right? These communities are sovereigns in some way. Now, that's a, rad that's a relatively, I think, harder position than many people take. But I think that's the position I would take that those traditions communities have particular traditions communities precisely because they have decided a particular way to manage and have their own social bargain. Why, what role should we have in that social bargain if we're not part of the community? Is one problem with this, Jebo, that 
these communities, of course, are dynamic. They're not frozen in time. They've been heavily influenced by the West. And that there isn't, is it possible today to say that there is a clear sort of indigenous approach to resolving these issues? Or is it even necessary to do to say that, that you just leave it open to the communities themselves to work this out? however they want to work it out. I think there is clearly some convergence and some, even some harmonization between both indigenous communities and where they're located because it's right, land, property, right? They, they, they're subject to the law of the metropolitan state in which they live, right? And so that's one of the issues we deal with. But I think it's actually, that differentiation isn't actually that hard, right? I think about common law. The US has its own particular approach to common law, UK. Australia, South Africa, right? We all draw on similar sources of common law, but we all our particular solutions to it, but our particular versions of managing it are different based on sort of the particular concerns. And I think that's one of the things. The thing I think that people struggle with, and I think this is why it's hard, is to think of these indigenous communities and nations as actual sovereigns, right? Once you get over that sovereign hump, then all these other things become much easier to think through, right? But if you can't admit the idea that these might be sovereigns with the capacity to manage, set, and develop their own law and legal systems, and like develop dynamically, then I think, yeah, it's harder. But if you accept that as a, as a premise, I think, then a lot of these other issues about how do we determine it, et cetera, I think fall away. So, Jebba, this is a good segue, actually, into asking you a little bit uh, about your own background. Uh, you know, this is obviously what we're talking about is, is part of a, a world historic clash between the West and, and non-Western societies and how we end up trying to navigate through that in the 21st century in a way that's equitable and fair, given very... Uh, uneven power dynamics and and uh, a difficult history. In some ways, it, it's not surprising that given what you were saying before, that your background is Zulu, you grew up in South Africa, um, you live in the United States, you're a law professor in the United States. Uh, you've experienced this, this dynamic from both sides. And so I'm, I'm interested in sort of your own personal point of departure and, and what led you to want to write about this and whether you feel like you're torn between two worlds or you feel at this point you're, you're totally steeped in the West or, or how you, you deal with all this and how it's really animated you uh, in, your, in your academic interests. It, you know, it's such an interesting experience because as part of doing this research, you know, I hadn't really thought this through, but Solomon Linda comes from the very specific region in Zululand where my family's from, from just outside Ladysmith, um, right? The Shabalala as a clan ended up there. But we ended up there because like my people fled Swaziland because we got in trouble there and ended up in, in Zululand or adopted and made Zulu, we became Zulu there. But pretty, pretty quickly, my family became urbanized. We have been city folk for as long as we can remember, right? And that means that in many ways, that 
urban component where you've had this melding, this so hybridization is part of the identity of a lot of sort of middle-class Zulus like my family, right? We, you know, one of the things you see in the story is, you know, you know, Mac, you know the American culture came through and helped to make urban Zulu culture, right? Um, British culture came through and helped to make urban Zulu culture. Tulsa's came through and made urban Zulu culture. And so we're already hybridized in many ways in that sense. Tradition, of course, is part of it, but it's dynamic, it's evolving, it's changing, the boundaries shift back and forth. And I think that's what I've grown up in, right? I've lived in South Africa, I lived in Swaziland, I lived in, in Botswana where my, my family lived during exile under apartheid. I lived in, in the Netherlands. And it's always been a story about hybridization. Right? And, and you, know, you can do hybridization in two ways. You can do hybridization in, I'm only going to be, I'm only going to be the thing that I'm a hybrid, something new that's never been seen before. Or you can do hybridization as sort of overlapping, right? I'm I'm part of this set when I'm doing this. I'm part of this set when I'm doing this. I'm part of this other set when I'm doing this. And I get to be all of those things in whole, right? And that's, I think, being the thing that I found most helpful. So I became an American citizen in 2019. I get to be an American in whole, right? I had been Zulu because of my father's side of the family. I get to be Zulu in whole, not successfully, and not always well, because I speak Zulu like somebody who has who learned it as a child and not as an adult and didn't continue as an adult. But I think that's the story of a lot of these cult, uh, sort of indigenous and co colonial, post-colonial cultures. We're not one thing or the other. We are both and new at the same time. And I think that's the story I've wanted to tell in all my writing, which is how do we adjust to this? How do we develop in this framework? How do we get to have the right to take one thing and take from another thing and build something new? And when do we have to acknowledge and pay for that and, and engage with that? And I think that's, that's a core question for people like myself, but it's a question for every single sort of post-colonial society as well. So that's, Really, really interesting, Jebo. We, I mean, these issues of cultural clash and identity right now are obviously hugely challenging throughout the world. And what you're suggesting, it seems like, is actually a model that's pretty optimistic, that somebody <laughs> can actually take different identities, if I'm understanding you correctly, yep. and be wholly each identity and not have some sort of conflict that you can live in these different worlds and somehow that this is actually maybe even a good thing to be able to have this kind of cultural fusion. Um, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, right. I mean, it's interesting because of course, I, you know, I read cosmopolitanism when it came out, right? It was hugely influential. I think, right, that question of, right, you know, I am part of a cosmopolitan class, new, that hasn't been, see, right, that highly mobile global cosmopolitan class, I think is a real thing, right? But I think unlike the author, I don't think of it as a separate class with its own separate interests that has no connections to where they come from, right? I think the Indonesian members of that class are Indonesian too, right? The American members of the class are American, the, right, the Chilean members of the class are Chilean, right? The question isn't so much whether they can be part of each community, but it's what are the terms on which they get to negotiate that interaction? I think is crucial, right? Um, you know, I think 
and I think that answer would have to be slightly different depending on who are the who are the communities doing that negotiation. But I think that is crucial, right? That it has to be on terms of equality. You don't get to have one be dominant over the other, right? So equity and equality is crucial, the premise of equality. The premise that if you're not equal, then you set up the negotiation and discussion such that the power imbalance is changed in order to have an equitable negotiation and discussion interaction. And then you give fruit to the consent, to the sort of jointly consented project and negotiation for exchange that you have. And I think the thing that we struggle with, which is why you are seeing sort of the movement to decolonize all sorts of fields of study or third world approaches to international, for example, right? Is because the, the process for bargaining and negotiating across these boundaries is not equal. So we're talking about how to make that more equal. Yeah, this is a really fascinating question. And of course, it's a civilizational question. But as I was suggesting in your answering, it's also a question for individuals. And, and I suppose one, one sort of question that would come up is, well, you know, maybe a lot easier for someone who's part of this global elite class to, to be able to do this on more equal terms than it would be for someone who is a, a, small, a small farmer. Uh, in in uh, some village in in the exactly, and I think the question arises: How do we empower that small farmer to be able to engage on an equitable basis with other systems and other cultures? Right. I mean, that I think is the core question that I'm interested in. I think uh, there's sort of a, a whole group of scholars for whom this is the fundamental question of international law, um, the fundamental question of domestic law, really as well. But I think. For us who are working sort of international arena, that is the key question. So that's a really good segue actually into uh, another um, uh, article or rather book chapter that you wrote a couple years ago for the book New Technologies in Human Rights Law and Practice edited by Landon Aronson. Um, where you talked about human rights and climate change. And here you were talking about, in terms of mitigation strategies, trying to be equitable, and the difference between um, um, the, development, the, the developmental approach, uh, which is for more for countries as a whole, versus the human rights approach, looking at the impact on individuals, maybe this farmer in this village that I was I was just referring to, in terms of figuring out ways to deal deal with climate change, um, could you say a little bit about that and and what your your thinking is on that? You know, it's both a practical and I think and a moral um, sort of approach. So the practical one is right claims that countries can make. In international in the international arena, we've been making since sort of the early post-colonial days, right? Which is, we were colonized by you, and you benefited from taking our resources. You owe us development, right? You need to give us room to develop. You need to provide technical assistance, development aid, access to knowledge, access to technology, right? All of which is owed as a function of the nature of right, the prior relationship, a, a kind of almost reparational, you know, but it's at the level of the state, right? It is a state to state relationship. 
and you know, my thesis is that for the most part, I think that's failed, right? Um, like to the extent that we we ended up in the post, you know, Berlin Wall um, environment, a lot of the strength of that argument, I think, fell away in the broader new framework of international relations, and the power of that claim was also lost by sort of the history of that post-colonial development where regimes and all these states failed their own peoples, right? That they were able to make claims against other states, but failed their own peoples over and over and over again. We saw this in Zimbabwe, we saw this in Ghana, we saw this in Ethiopia, we saw this in Indonesia, we saw this in Malaysia, right? All, right? And so one of the questions, one of the things that happened is developed countries are able to point to the regimes in these countries and say, why would we help you? You have failed your own people. Your moral claim has disappeared. And so the argument I make, I'm making, I think a few other people are making, is that, well, we don't have to get away from making the moral claim. It's just that we have to change to whom the claim is owed, by who. If we focus on a human rights lens, and I think I would get away from the idea that it's just individual, right? That it is communities as well. That the governments in developing countries owe duties to their communities and their individuals in their community around climate change, around de de delivering health, around de delivering housing, around delivering safety and, and all those things in order to sort of address mitigation and adaptation. And the developed countries also owe that to developing countries, but it doesn't have to be to the state. They have to owe that to the communities and individuals inside each state. And that I think allows both a moral claim to be made and also a way to get around the impasse around who are the beneficiaries of the aid or the assistance that we're providing? Does it go to state coffers or can we say, no, designated specifically for these purposes to this population, right? It's a way to get around the sort of sovereignty claim that many of the states make around, just give us the money, we'll do it kind of idea, right? It's a way to sort of condition and work around climate change aid or climate change technology access, but for these purposes to meet these human rights needs, right? I think that has been like the, the sort of play that we're trying to make around the developmental framework. So I guess there's two possible ways, uh, Jebo, that this could play out. One is that the developing countries, that the developed countries rather, that this claim is being made upon uh, that they need to provide resources for climate uh, adaptation uh, and mitigation, that they either would say, well, we will give, we will do this, but we're going to give directly to these communities rather than to the state as a whole, or they would give it to the state conditioned upon that they give it to the communities. Um, it, I guess it's either one is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways we can see, right, is the way the sort of the regional development banks and even something like the Green Climate Fund works, right, where the it's not just the state that can apply for funding, it is sub-state actors with the support of the state. And one of the criteria for providing that aid can be and could be that it meets these sort of community-based, who are the beneficiaries, right? Are we... Right, and one of the questions would be, are we providing a giant pot of money for a hydroelectric dam that's going to displace 
whole communities and villages? Yes, okay, no, we're not gonna do that because from a human rights framework, that would be a violation. But are we providing you know, mini solar and mini grids for these communities in this framework? Okay, that meets our obligations here and meets the obligations there and is supported by the state. Yes, great, we can do that, right? And so it's a mix of sort of, not saying the state can't be involved or even can't be the beneficiary, but only for these particular purposes when they approve the funding and they have to report on what I will spend, et cetera, right? Um, and I think, right, of course, many developing country governments will object. But to, to be fair, some of them have failed significantly at this and it makes sense to do that. Many developed country governments may also object, right, because it limits their ability to use this as a means of carrying out foreign policy by some other means, other, other levers, right? And I think it's a way to control the behavior of both sets of parties in that framework by focusing on specific kinds of beneficiaries. So given those political challenges that you're, that you're mentioning, to what extent has this been incorporated in what just happened in, in Glasgow? I have two answers to that. One is not at all, <laughs> which is that to some extent, right, Glasgow was very much a status quo um, climate change uh, COP, right, uh, conference of the parties meeting, in the sense that it was really focused on implementing the sort of the agreements that have been made in Paris, perhaps increasing the ambition of some of the contributions the countries are making to mitigation focusing on increasing the amount, first meeting the amount sort of countries said they would meet in providing $100 million a year in financing and getting them to meet that obligation and then increasing that obligation, setting up some of the rules for reporting on mitigation, what's called the transparency framework, and then negotiating a transparency framework for providing financial and technological assistance. So in that sense, nothing, I think, change, especially in the area in which I work in technology. It's very much a status quo. A lot of the action was actually what we'd call action that took place outside the convention, outside the treaty where you had plurilateral and sort of announcements of aid. So for example, a big chunk of money from 20 developed countries to South Africa for a just transition out of coal into solar, right? That's a, an independent kind of agreement and project sort of outside the convention, but those countries will be able to report that project as one of their contributions out of, uh, out of the Paris Agreement. So I think in that sense, small incremental progress. I think for somebody like me who works on technology and intellectual property issues, Glasgow was actually maybe a step backwards in the sense that Paris agreed um, a technology framework where both developing and developing countries would work on policy issues and through certain mechanisms begin to think about providing technology transfer. But that never really came to fruition. It sort of set in stone a kind of developmental aid approach, but it didn't have a human rights framework built into how this was going to be decided about where it was going to go. And there's no implementation mandate. There's no mandate to actually be the vector by which 
technology would flow from developed to developing countries. And so we're left with simple bilateral kind of approaches to this. And so I would say for somebody like me who has worked in technology issues and has been going to COP since Copenhagen, um, this was, I think, quite disappointing to not see progress on that. So, Jebo, finally, uh, just following up on this this question of of equity and between the the developed and the the developing world, I'd like to ask you about this other topic that you've been involved with as well, um, and that is vaccines. And uh, you've done a lot on intellectual property uh, in, in in the TRIPS agreement and. Uh, um, particularly right now, obviously everyone's very concerned about about COVID, and uh, you've been blogging about this at your blog IP and. So, could you talk a little bit about um, what the impediments are, the intellectual IP impediments are to getting the COVID vaccine uh, distributed uh, to developing countries, and and other other potential impediments, and what you see as the as the solutions. You know, I think a lot of the listeners will remember the debate around access to HIV medications from the late 1990s and early 2000s. That was, I think, the first iteration of this problem at an, at an international level. Right? Pharmaceutical companies did a great job developing these medications. They sold them at, I think, a reasonable price in developed, developed economies. And there was some access, maybe not as much as we would have liked, but there was access. But in developing countries, Right, these drugs were were too expensive. We could not buy them at a price that would meet the need in those in those countries. And so the question that arose then was, okay, can somebody else produce them in order to prov- provide them at a lower price? And the answer to that from the pharmaceutical company was no. That's our intellectual property. And, and the you know, people there was a lot of work from human rights organizations and health organizations to push against that. And the pharmaceutical companies lost a case at the in South Africa again about that. And part of this was driven by this basic idea. There is actually a valve in the intellectual property system, in the patent system, to deal with this. It's called compulsory licensing. Countries can issue compulsory licenses for the production of medicines that are needed in an emergency. HIV was an emergency. AIDS was before trips, right? It was no, well, AIDS started before TRIPS, but TRIPS, you know, once TRIPS had happened, you still had lots of countries like India and other countries that were in a position to produce, but TRIPS made it so that they could only produce for their domestic market. They couldn't produce to send to Botswana. And Botswana didn't have any production. I lived there. Botswana had no pharmaceutical companies. And so they, there, was, there was all this production that could happen in India. They could sell it to Botswana. And yet... TRIPS prevented that. And we came to an agreement in 2003, the decision, the Doha decision to allow that kind of exporting to happen, but it's a really complicated system. And that's what we're dealing with now, right? Right now under under COVID, we could do this, right? India could produce, China could produce the mRNA vaccines, Chile could produce the mRNA vaccines, issue compulsory licenses, but only if they had domestic manufacturing capacity to do so and be allowed to export it. And right now the system that we have just can't do it at scale or at speed. 
You have to go for an individual one. And so that that's where we realized we've hit a wall. We can't do that under the existing system. Even if the patent and information was all available, we can't do that kind of emergency production under the existing system with the compulsory license system that we have at TRIPS. And there's just not enough to do that at scale. And so the question arises, okay, what should we do in that situation? And the argument is, well, right now, because in the emergency situation, let's just waive the IP. Let the countries produce, let them produce for export. Let the Indian companies produce for export to, to Africa and to Asia, right? The need is so large, why bother and wait? And I think there are two answers, sort of two responses to that, both of which I think are surmountable, but I think are, are valid. One is, this isn't just patents, this is trade secrets. Compulsory licenses are great for patents, but the companies, Pfizer and Moderna, have these as trade secrets. We can't force them to share those trade secrets. Right? And so the question is, well, actually, no, we can't. Legally speaking, we can indeed require such sharing of trade secrets. We do so in competition laws at stake. We can do so in pharmaceutical laws at stake. We just don't have an actual agreement in the TRIPS agreement to do so. But we can indeed enforce sharing of trade secrets. But it does require the US government and the EU governments, Germany and others, to actually act and require such sharing as a function of their domestic law, right? Um, the government in Botswana or South Africa can't make Moderna or Pfizer do it, right? It has to be their home, their home country. But it can be done under existing law, just not under the TRIPS agreement, which doesn't address that. The other argument... But TRIPS doesn't forbid it either, is that correct? That is an interesting question. So I wrote a paper on trade secrets and access to information six years ago. That's a long time. Saying that actually, to the extent that TRIPS requires trade secret protection, it only requires it for when you are providing information to the government for approval purposes. But for other purposes, there should still be room. But there is indeed a question around that which is why the proposal for a waiver of IP protection at the WTO, I think, is makes sense, right? Because there's some uncertainty around that, that that waiver will free up governments in developed countries to also do this without fear of being um, sued. You know, but there is a manufacturing capacity problem, right? There, there are lots and lots of inputs that aren't available all the way down the line. Um, and the argument is, well, there are all these other inputs that are also short in supply, to which I say, yes, but many of those are also in short supply in part because they are patented. And so that's what a waiver is for. It's not just for the vaccine, but for the entire supply chain. Right? And that's what we're trying, I think, is the core there. But it's the disappointing thing. So, Jim, let me just ask a sort of a concluding yeah. question. If the issue is, is that there's... At the end of the day, it's really about scarcity of, of supply and of um, constituent components to the vaccines. Then, does it really matter, it, you know, who the producer is? Because there's only so much supply that can be produced. And is it just more efficient to have them all produced in the traditional pharmaceutical companies where they own the vaccines and just 
is the real issue about spending the money to buy them and to distribute them properly rather than who's producing them. If our issue isn't about, you know, spreading out the production capabilities, um, which may be a whole other issue of <laughs> policy, but if the issue is just about getting the vaccines to the people, then does it make sense to just say, you know, let the, the Pfizer's and the Moderna's, et cetera, produce a vaccine, but we've got to better distribute it once they've, they've actually manufactured it. We'd love that, right? Um, the, the problem we've run into, so Moderna is a, is a classic example, right? Where the, the, Mr. Brulla, the head of, Pfizer, of Moderna says, I'd love to make more, I need more orders. And development was like, we would love to order, but you have to tell us that you can deliver within the next six months to a year. And he's like, no, you have to join the back of the line. And so they're not going to order because, well, if you tell us you're only going to get to us in two years, why are we going to order from you? We need them in six months. And in the meantime, he said, okay, but then I'm going to produce boosters for Germany and, 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 right. and the EU, not, not the EU, right? Their incentives are not to make as much as possible to meet every single demand, right? Their incentive is to produce enough for people to buy at the price point that they would like with their current capacity right now, because, right, their current capacity, they would have to make significant capital investments to expand their production. They're not going to. But there are other people who are willing to make those capital investments if they were, if they had the right information to make it, right? And so I think that's the trick that we're missing here, that the capital investments necessary to increase the production that incentive doesn't lie with those companies, but there are lots of companies that have that incentive and would do so in uh, in the absence of sort of limitations on their right to do so. Fascinating, and that of course then there then that creates a, more competitors against them in the marketplace. Yeah, and they they have no interest in that. I don't want to see that happen. Very very interesting, um, Jebo. Obviously, you're working on as I said at the outset, you're working on some of the most highly salient issues that we're facing today. Really, really fascinating stuff. Um, uh, thank you very much for being a guest on this, and I, I look forward to uh, to discussing all this with you. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have Jebo right here in the building, with me. so um, uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation. Uh, thank you all, and uh, see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>